0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode ninety-one: Charismatic Vampires.
2: Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's Mike and Dave with you here once again, and it's time for a discussion topic. Always a lot of fun, especially since the listeners get to chime in and vampires aren't necessarily sci-fi fair, but we've talked about so many shows that have vampires in them. It struck me that we should talk about the ones that drew us in the most and were able to actually make us like them despite their bloodthirst.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you said they're not sci-fi fair. And I would certainly agree with you to a point, although you get shows like Van Helsing, they tie in, you know, meteorological phenomenon that happens with the eruption. Of,
2: Post-apocalypse.
1: Kind you know, of feel. the volcano. And, and, you know, some of them weave a little bit of science in there. But, uh, yeah, pretty much fantasy. Yeah. And you've got a
2: lot of vampires that actually have uh, the cause being a virus and zombies have been doing that too. So yeah, there's a lot of crossover. And plus we do talk about quite a few fantasy shows on this podcast, but yeah, we're going to have some uh, interesting input from the listeners as well. We definitely had a hard time paring it down to six. I think I switched
1: my three choices at least once. And I know you did too, Dave. So, well, well, not only did I switch, I cheated. So uh, I'll get to that in a minute, but, but you know, it's funny because we talk about charisma and it, generally has a positive connotation. So I thought, let me look it up in the dictionary. And, you know, there is that compelling attractiveness or charm that can inspire devotion in others, which uh, I forget which dictionary I got that out of. But it doesn't necessarily have to have positive connotations. And one of the shows, not my first show, the negativity is there. And I'll, I'll just hold that off for a second. But I had to pick Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and when I say I cheated, how could I choose between Angel and Spike? (laughs) Well, and
2: there's even others you could have chosen, but it seems like we always bring Buffy the Vampire Slayer into these discussion topics because it just covers so many best ofs around the sphere of anything we could discuss, any topic that we could hone in on. Your Angel and Spike didn't necessarily follow this, but I also was thinking of Charisma, being sort of a power that vampires have, they are able to charm people sometimes. I know that was true in what we do in the shadows, not true in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but true of vampires in general.
1: Yeah. And of course there are a lot of vampires in Buffy and Drusilla was one that crossed my mind and I love her, but uh, you know, at this point she's not beating out Angel or Spike. So (laughs) Angel portrayed by David Boreanaz, introduces one of the series' fundamental ironies, and and it hits you right away. As soon as you see the connection between the two, the Slayer falls in love with a vampire. And the other thing that makes it so cool for me is that this is Buffy's first love, and the relationship's instantly complicated, far beyond the Slayer-Vampire dynamic, because he's lived close to 200 years and has all of these experiences, including sexual that go with it. And he is just a good guy for a vampire, right? I mean, right away we learn that this shadowy figure that's been stalking Buffy turns out to be somebody that yes, he's been stalking her, I guess in the broad sense of the word, but he's been there to protect her.
2: Yeah, and I think it also bears mentioning because you'll see a commonality between some of our vampire choices That he wasn't always good. And I think a lot of our examples, they have had time to come to grips with maybe the morality of their situation and figured out how to calm their thirst. (laughs) But sometimes that comes with time and, and maturity for vampires can take centuries.
1: Right. And we are talking charisma. So aside from his traditional good looks, cool wardrobe, dude, black leather jacket. We later learn that he lives with the knowledge that he's been cursed to wrangle with his human soul. And and he's got this struggle for redemption that that really kind of strikes at his character's core. So there's that that really draws us to him as well. But then Spike, on the other hand, is the quintessential bad boy. And James Marsters is just masterful as he draws us to his character Even though the Scooby gang is understandably skeptical of his intentions, how could they not be?
2: Yeah, well, and the thing is, he doesn't have the benefit of a soul, at least not at first. So, you know, his charisma has to come from elsewhere.
1: Exactly. And whether it's that bleached blonde hair, leather duster, uh, you know, in, in so many ways, he's the antithesis of Angel. And again, if you're a fan of the show, you know that Angel leaves the show for all intents and purposes because he goes off and has his own show. And then Spike appears on the uh, scene. And and of course, there are some episodes where the two (laughs) run into each other, which is cool in its own way. (laughs) But, you know, whereas the romance between Angel and Buffy occurs virtually overnight, it's so cool the way this relationship between Buffy and Spike develops as this slow burn. I mean, he's clearly infatuated with her, from the beginning and then that moves into a friends with benefits mode which I think catches <laughs> most of us off guard and you know I liked it because it so humanized her and we really never <laughs> were quite sure where Spike was coming from whether e- either of them ever actually loved the other is part of the draw here I think and it's hard not to pull for Spike, especially when we learn about his origins as this very bad poet. Yeah. Well, in, in that sense, you talked to him about him being the antithesis
2: of Angel and their origins couldn't be more opposite either. So they kind of switched places halfway along the line, you know. So, yeah.
1: All right. So who you got first?
2: Well, it's interesting because you're bringing up the romance angle. And I think we're going to find that also as a common thread here. That tends to temper some of their beast-like tendencies. And my first example comes from Being Human, the UK version, because I think a lot of people who watch that show know that Mitchell was just a great part of that show because the theme, the whole point of the show, is that we've got a ghost, a werewolf, and a vampire trying to live harmoniously among humans. So of course, you're going to have to turn up the charm, turn on the charisma, In order to do that, right? And I think Mitchell, among the three, is probably the most successful, or I guess maybe not successful, but he tries the hardest at it and is committed to it, even if he's not all that good at it sometimes.
1: Yeah, and you know, I was telling somebody about being human the other day, and I know when you say it out loud, the premise seems kind of silly, but (laughs) right away, you're just drawn into, again, the human aspects of each of the characters.
2: Right, because they do have a human origin that often comes into play. And Mitchell's is quite tragic. He's 120 years old. He got turned during World War One in a heroic act that saved the other members of his battalion who were being threatened by a band of vampires. And Mitchell went through a period after that where he was just death and destruction. He was the the, the lapdog of his maker, and he didn't regain his humanity until the 60s. Now, all that is backstory, of course. These violent days are in his past, and it's a source of shame for him. So in Being Human, you know, his redemption arc, just like with Angel and Spike, is part of Mitchell trying to get along with the neighbors. And, you know, sometimes his altruism is misguided, but he's got a good heart when it comes right down to it.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things that you know, you reminded me of that World War 1 scene and it's so tragic on so many levels but just so heroic.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of his charisma. The the backstory just like with Spike. It's part of what makes him more sympathetic to the audience and to the other characters in the show sometimes. But I think the charisma, the charismatic vampires we're talking about almost extends more to the audience. Than it does to the people in the show, and in fact, the love story that begins between Mitchell and Annie, the resident ghost, you know, he's best friends with the werewolf George too, and so that's part of the charisma. They each save the other's life several times, and this vampire he basically oozes charisma even as he struggles to contain his bloodlust, which is a a losing battle in this show, really. Compared to
1: some of the other vampires, well, especially um, when you work in a hospital, <laughs> yeah, that can't help. <laughs> um, but you know, you mentioned Annie, and I don't want to digress too much. But boy, when we find out how it is she became a ghost, God, what a heart wrenching! Yeah. yeah, that show is really good at origin stories. <laughs> All right, well, let me get on to my second one, and I went for the dark here. I mean, I guess you could argue that all the vampire stories have a (laughs) a certain darkness to them, but if you've listened to our podcast for any length of time, you know I'm a huge Van Helsing fan, and there's a a bit of a difference here, And, and I'm going with, again, two characters, just a little bit on each one. They are connected. It was difficult to not choose Trisha Helfer, who has come on the seen as Dracula, but she's only appeared in two episodes of season four. So I felt like we couldn't really include her. The the listeners will take care of that one. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going with Rebecca and Dimitri. And since most of the vampires on Van Helsing are really closer to zombies than the romanticized images ordinarily portrayed in literature and film, and I'm talking to you, Edward Cullen, it's (laughs) Difficult to find a character that truly fits the profile I think that we had in mind when we started planning for this discussion. So, Dimitri, played by Paul Johansson, is the leader of the vampires, features well coiffed hair, natty attire, including the omnipresent black leather jackets. Of course. (laughs) I'm starting to sense a theme here. And though he's clearly evil, there's something that not only draws the vampires to him, but as a viewer, there's just something about this character who claims to have lived for over 300 years that I don't want to say you root for him, but you understand the power that he exudes over the other vampires and this is a, a show that there are all sorts of levels of vampires including the bottom rung which are the ferals who feed primarily off of animals and crawl around on all fours Dmitri, of of course is at the top and he seems to be the leader then there's rebecca played by Laura Minnell. And full disclosure, I'm partial to redheads. Again, I think I've said that many times. Well, also Laura Minnell. I mean, she's in Project Blue Book right now. And any show she's on, you're immediately drawn to her character. All right. And there's a connection between her and Dimitri. Not romantic, necessarily, but it's almost as if they're both vying for control. And again, like Dimitri, there's no mistaking her feeling that humans serve little purpose. But- her obvious attractiveness sense of fashion her overpowering attitude again makes it impossible to look away anytime she's on screen and eschewing the jacket yeah she goes for tight <laughs> leather pants instead of course which we're not going <laughs> to complain there but but there's just a sense of power that emanates from her and yes that includes sexual power but also intellectual power and that Battle she's having with Dimitri for control of the vampires, you know, is one of the compelling plot points of the seasons in which the two of them appear.
2: Yeah. And I think you mentioned that Dimitri lived for 300 years, and all of our vampires have different lengths of lifetime. But there's something about that, too. The longer they've lived, it almost seems like we're invested more in their character because they've invested more time in. (laughs) in our own history. So that that kind of makes them more valuable to us as well. And I know you're going to be talking about uh, your third choice that really fits into that category. But I also want to uh, mention True Blood because True Blood was one of those shows that came on the scene right after the craze of Twilight. You mentioned Edward Cullen just a bit ago. And this was one of the first that broke out early and we really were getting into genre TV at the time and and actually scrambling around to look for a podcast topic to do. And I know True Blood was on the discussion table for a little while, but the character that stood out to me as soon as she was introduced was Jessica Hamby played by Deborah Ann Wall. And now she was not a vampire at the beginning of the series, at, at the beginning of her character's introduction, but she just has the most charisma of the the different tribes (laughs) that are introduced in the show i mean you've got no brooding like you have with bill compton you've got no people issues or (laughs) fellow vampire issues that eric northman seems to have all the time although you know eric does have a close second i think uh he's he's a good character
1: (laughs) oh my gosh and you just love to hate him but not like in a Dr. Smith kind of love to hate way, you know? Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you don't always feel sorry for Eric when right. things are
2: going wrong for him, whereas you definitely feel that way about Jessica because Bill was forced to create her to become her maker in retaliation for his murder of another vampire. It was kind of like you took one out, you got to make one in its place. So uh, her innocence and devotion to the church, I think, was purposefully chosen to make her turning both tragic and ironic given her chastity and um, you know belief in a higher power and all that, which actually wasn't entirely of her own choosing. She was kind of homeschooled by a strictly religious and physically abusive father. So her becoming a vampire actually opened up a whole world of desires for her, not just sexual desires, but just things that she wanted to experience. And I think that's where her charisma springs from.
1: Well, you know, and one of the things that I, I noticed about all of these shows, you ha- you take a series like Buffy that had seven seasons and those were long seasons to really give us a sense of the backstory of these characters. Then you take a show like Being Human. Those were very short seasons, if I recall correctly. So they didn't have the time. And now we're, you know, with True Blood where they did have, you know, a lot of seasons, albeit on the shorter side, but not as short as being human. So, yeah, when we learn about how she was raised and then it explains so much.
2: Well, yeah, and and part of her charm really is in her innocence, almost naivete, as she starts out on a relationship with a kind of dullard local named Hoyt. And they're both kind of adorable, but a little bit misguided. And, you know, her commitment to making it work is what gets her this vote amongst her kind on this show because there definitely were a lot of other characters especially a couple of the female vampires that definitely could have risen to the top here but she it's not that she doesn't have issues she does enjoy feeding on humans and does not have a taste for the blood synthetic drink true blood that the show is named after and she was a virgin before she turned And vampires have regenerative powers, so you can do the math. That's not a pleasant experience for her.
1: (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, that's a show that, you know, it's funny because I never finished it. I've still got like two full seasons to go, and I don't know why I never finished. I've got to get back to it at some point, especially since it's available. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Now, when I was talking to my wife the other day about the discussion topic that we were going to do this week and mentioned who my vampires were, she's like, you're not going to do... Matthew Good and Discovery of Witches, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, you how change, can I forget? You changed one of yours to that. I was
2: about to change one of mine to Matthew Good, so I'm so glad you chose to do it instead so I didn't have to
1: sacrifice one of mine. <laughs> right. Now, this is a show that we did talk about, uh, I don't know how many months ago, but uh, Discovery of Witches. The character played by Matthew Goods, name is Matthew Claremont. And it's based on the series of novels by Deborah Harkness, The All Souls trilogy. And it's one of those shows that I don't want to say I was surprised that I fell so in love oh, with it. But I was. I was. <laughs> uh, it's just, oh, it's it's I'll tell you, it's one of those shows that I have not erased from my DVR. No,
2: I loved it. Especially once they get the time travel in
1: there. <laughs> right. Now Claremont is a geneticist, professor, and vampire who conducts research in his fairly well-appointed lab that seeks to understand the genetic connections between vampires, witches, and demons. And those are the three creatures that we're most familiar with within this uh, world that Discovery of Witches takes us into. And then did I mention his English accent? I mean, come on, we're talking charisma here. <laughs> yeah. Among Americans, that's a huge point in your favor. <laughs> yes. The only one better is Australian. But <laughs> Now, of course, much of the plot centers on this long-lost manuscript that turns out to be bewitched. And it's a tome that only the reluctant witch, Diana Bishop, played by Teresa Palmer, can access. So the relationship she forms with Matthew drives the narrative as the two let's be honest, equally charismatic characters battle long-held prejudices. And then, of course, we've got our shadow organization in the background bent on stopping them. But again, like Buffy, you've got the two. I mean, maybe Buffy is more extreme because the Slayer and the vampire. But witches and vampires aren't supposed to get along in this world either. So there is that. And and there's a lot of backlash When the council finds out about their relationship, of course, we've got a council.
2: Well, and also forbidden love makes it more enticing. It's not as though these two characters didn't have a ton of chemistry on screen already, but the fact that it's verboten (laughs) makes it even hotter.
1: (laughs) Oh, right, exactly. And we go through that in any show that gives us a sort of a situation where the two characters try to hide it as long as they can because they know (laughs) what people are going to say. Now, you mentioned longevity. Doing the math, it sounds like he's lived over a thousand years because I think at one point he says he was born around 500 AD. Yeah, I think he wins the contest across Uh, our six. (laughs) And so that adds to his experiential appeal, plays into the connection with our innocent witch as the star-crossed lovers navigate their romance. And, and, of course, Diana Bishop is not as innocent as Buffy was, but, but still. Unfortunately, there's no leather for Monsieur Claremont. <laughs> he doesn't need it. He's British. <laughs> exactly. But the literal and figurative magnetism between the two can't be ignored. He comes across as the gentle vampire who feeds off animals rather than humans, at, at least that we see within the episodes but one of my favorite shows i just cannot wait for it to return i just remembered that spike was british too although the
2: actor is not so he did wear leather it's allowed as long as you're punk (laughs) there you go (laughs) all right so my last one is bringing back another show that has made it to the discussion topics a few times now including our theme music discussion and that's preacher because preacher has cassidy the vampire and Man, oh man, did I love this character. He was immediately charismatic and grabbed our attention right from the start, which kind of surprised me a little bit because it's not like his origins were all that charismatic or, or enticing or sympathetic. He kind of was just living a life of avarice for the past hundred years. And we do get the sense that he's only a century old, quite young for a vampire, but he was just kind of living it up. Uh, on like some airplane, I think, at the beginning when we first meeting him. Yeah. Taking drugs, drinking, and just having a good old time. And then he meets Jesse Custer and everything changes. Now, I, I don't know if he attaches himself to Jesse because he immediately realizes that something's different about him with this voice of God that he's taken on. But he quickly becomes devoted to the cause of finding out what the power is and what it means. So I think that actually plays a big part in why he becomes charismatic right away but it also is throughout the series he almost seems to be the most moralistically centered
1: character of the bunch which is so ironic because when we first see him he's anything but and again as you were describing how we see him early on I think for me that's a lot of the appeal the fact that this guy is just a hot mess and (laughs) (laughs) you, you just don't See him really coming out of this spiral, but yeah, you know, he does to a certain extent. I think it's also because he
2: doesn't make any human connections. He doesn't try, and he certainly doesn't share his secret with every anyone. And when he tells Jesse, kind of out of necessity, just because he needs a sort of protection, I guess you could say, you know, Jesse just kind of says, "Oh, okay, you're a vampire," and and I think, yeah, Cassidy says, oh, this is great. He's my chum. He's my pal. But it's mostly just that Jesse doesn't believe him (laughs) until later when he, when he proves it by walking out into sunlight. So I thought that was a good way to have them bond at first, but he does seem to be the most morally sound member of the group between him, Jesse and Jesse's 'er ne'er-do-well girlfriend Tulip, of course, because in season two, this is where it really comes into play. His charisma he cares for his aging mortal son. He had a son at some point. His son is now quite old. Cassidy does not age himself. So it's kind of a nice fun scene where he's caring for his son who's much older than he is. But at the very last second, he's, you know, he's struggling. What am I going to do? I feel bad for my son. I can't do anything for him. Finally saves his life by turning him and it doesn't turn out well. I'm not going to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen <laughs> what happens with Cassidy and his son, but it's not good. <laughs> and so you kind of really feel bad for Cassidy in that respect. And I think that's part of why he's the the charisma of his story gets us.
1: Right. And that's certainly a, a plot detail that we see in a lot of situations where that seems to be the only choice you've got in this situation. And, and from a Moral and ethical standpoint, you feel you're doing the right thing and there are catastrophic results,
2: right? We've seen it a few times. See, they're going to die. And if I don't turn them into a vampire, I'll lose them forever. So won't they thank me when I do this? And usually the opposite is true. So Cassidy does eventually end up pining away for Tulip. And although it causes him much distress over the seasons, his gentle ways with her win us over, make us root for him, even when he It's kind of a lost cause, but he also plays a pivotal role in the search for God in later seasons and his ability to make the right decision in adversity wins us over even through all of his hardships. And he doesn't always make the right choice, but he's always got our sympathy. So,
1: all right, that sounds good. I think we came up with six, maybe eight because I cheated twice. (laughs) Uh, Good choices. We've got an honorable mention, but why don't we see if any of the listeners, bring that up in their feedback because we got a number of responses to the Facebook group. So uh, we'll go ahead and start with Christopher, who brings up Angel and Spike from Buffy being the obvious ones. Drusilla is an interesting one. I love her and Darla both, so I'd include them. Boy, talk about me cheating. Uh, (laughs) I think you could pick a bunch from True Blood as well. I never thought much of Bill. The ladies may disagree, but Eric definitely fits your description. Jessica does as well, in my opinion. But that may be more of my celebrity crush on her than the character. Dude, I've, we've all been there.
2: <laughs> that might have been why I included her as well. But I think I did a good uh, justifying of it, a rationalization of it, maybe. <laughs> all right. And David did respond to Christopher as well. He admits that vampires aren't really his thing. But He answers Christopher with Drusilla and Darla were both great characters. I'm not sure there's been anyone quite like Drusilla before or since. And and for sure, if I were doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer for this list, I totally would have picked Drusilla. She's definitely my favorite. David goes on to say they were both particularly good in the flashbacks. I thought that's true. But David chooses Spike, Harmony and Vampire Willow from Buffy and Angel. And I think a few people were like, oh yeah, Vampire Willow, forgot about that. There were probably others throughout the series, but I was never that keen on the character of Angel. I also quite like the concept of original vampires from Vampire Diaries and the originals. Whatever other flaws those shows had, Klaus, Elijah, and Rebecca were good characters.
1: Okay. Now, Faith checks in and she seconds Harmony. And while Angel is number one on my list, I do have a soft spot for her.
2: And then my Aunt Sheila, who recently joined the group. Welcome to the group there, Aunt Sheila. (laughs) Her granddaughter, Michelle, is a big sci-fi fan. And so she asked her, who's your favorite vampire? But Sheila said, Michelle won't pick one. She just likes too many. But I have to say, I'm so happy that one of my relatives joined our
1: (laughs) humble podcast group. That's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Your brother's been quiet uh, over oh, the last yeah, few months. That's right. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he hadn't been posting. We got to find out. Did you did you do something at the last family gathering or something? <laughs> All right. Anyway, Benita checks in and brings up a show from 2007 called Moonlight, which was a victim of the writer's strike. Boy, we remember that one. And <laughs> Carolyn also brings up Moonlight. And we assume they mean Vampire Mix St. John, although Jason Doring of the originals also coincidentally featured prominently in Moonlight. So uh, that's a show that uh, I forgot about.
2: Yeah, the originals is not one that I actually ever watched, but I'm very happy that people chimed in with that one because there must be a plethora of choices from that one because those are all like very good-looking people. Vampires are always so good-looking. Have you yes, noticed, they Dave?
1: are. <laughs> well, except in Van Housing. <laughs> well. Rebecca, except for the two I mentioned.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Richard chimed in with a bunch of choices as he usually does. He said, and he, he, he went super obscure and I really appreciate that. He said, Barnabas Collins from the dark shadows program in the sixties. Great choice. And then of course he mentioned Laszlo, Nandor and Nadia who were originally on my list until I uh, replaced them with one of my other choices. They're from what we do in the shadows, which we talked about on this podcast. Richard also brought up Nick Knight of Forever Knight, which is a Canadian show, and it's one of the many vampire procedural hybrids <laughs> that they've tried over the years. And he also brought up Grandpa Munster. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because <laughs> you don't always have to go with dark and brooding, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then he also agreed with me that Cassidy is a great choice, and he took care of Trisha Helfer's Dracula for you, Dave, by putting her on his list.
1: It, mentioning Barnabas Collins, a number of years ago on Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, I did a take five, which is like little five, six minute podcast that I do by myself. And I covered the first episode of Dark Shadows. And I don't even remember what motivated me to do that. But again, another show I'd like to revisit when I get the chance. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Uh, Linda says, I haven't had a chance to see a discovery of witches yet, but I'm a big Matthew Good fan, and I'm sure he's great as Matthew Claremont. Linda, what are you waiting for? Is it Maybe it's not available where, yeah. where
2: she is. Yeah, Linda chimes in from uh, Australia, I think? Yes, uh,
1: I believe you're right, yeah.
2: Yeah, she's going to kill me if I'm wrong about that. But <laughs> Thank you very much, Linda. And Maureen rounds off our discussion topic with a nice humorous <laughs> choice. Count von Count, my first and, of course, numbers. And we could add with a count laugh. Uh, 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 uh. there you go. <laughs> so, Thank you, Maureen. And thank you for, for everyone who contributed to this uh, discussion topic. Maureen, in fact, suggested our next discussion topic. I won't mention it quite yet, but she's uh, suggested a nice topic for us to have in March. So we're looking forward to that one.
1: So what do we got next on the horizon, Mike?
2: Well, next is a show topic. We're going to be talking about lock and key on Netflix, which is a wonderfully fantastic show. That, and I mean fantastic in the fantasy sense because it really is magical and based on a comic that is quite different from your usual fare where there's a big spooky house, lots of keys, magical keys that do different things and a family that discovers them and a secret family history behind the house and the keys and what they're used for and who might be looking for them good and evil So definitely looking forward to checking out that. We'll have two episodes to discuss, plus a spoiler zone as well for those of you who have checked out the whole series. But that's going to be next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity.
1: And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions. You guys have been great with that lately. For future topics, through social media or send us an email at sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com.
2: Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.